Hey guys, welcome to The Jig Is Up. Uh, this week, I had the opportunity to sit down with a lady named Kathy LaGrange, and she is a 60-scoop survivor. And she was willing to share with us, uh, you know, her story, but also information, uh, kind of an insider's view of that whole 60-scoop situation right now. And I think it's really interesting. It's a really important conversation to have. Uh, so I hope you guys get a lot out of this. I hope you enjoy it. Um, she's a wonderful lady, and I hope that uh, it moves you guys to get involved and share stuff on social media, as well as get out and go to the rallies and, and show your support that way. So having said that, here's my conversation with Kathy LaGrange. All right, well, I'd like to welcome to the show. I'd like to welcome Kathy to the show. Uh, welcome. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Kathy LaGrange, and I'm a Cree Métis from Manitoba. I was born in Winnipeg, and um, I was adopted from birth, and that's why we're here, I guess, to talk a bit about the uh, 60 Scoop and how that all came about for me. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough subject to talk about, but I'm so I'm very glad that you're willing to come on here and tell us uh, tell us your experience with the, that whole whole thing. Um, so when when did you were were you you were adopted when you were an infant? I'm assuming. Yeah, I went to foster care for a little while, and then I was adopted almost right away. Um, they actually Child and Family Services of Manitoba actually called my adoptive parents and asked them if they would take a Métis baby, and of course they said yes. And, so I grew up in Winnipeg with uh, two other adopted siblings, um, two older brothers, and my and my parents. My dad is uh, well; he's now retired. He was a school principal, and uh, my mom actually worked in the library of the school uh, that I went to later. <clears throat> oh wow! And uh, yeah, both of them were really uh, active at the United Church, and I think that had something to do with it too. So when uh, did they at all encourage um, your, you know, uh, your Métis culture or anything, or did they talk about you being Métis or adopted even, or as you were growing I up? Knew, yeah, I knew from a young age that I was Métis and that I was adopted, but um, yeah, the cultural piece was not encouraged. I think I was just more encouraged to uh, assimilate into the family and, um, you know, kind of the Christian <laughs> Christian uh, family that yeah. they had started. So. And so did knowing that you were Métis, and, and I'm, I'm assuming you knew you were adopted as well, um, did that cause you any, like, was it kind of conflicting, or did you just kind of grow up that way and, and never really thought about it? Uh, I, it was okay, I think. I didn't really think about things too much until I got to be about... 12, maybe adolescence, and then I realized that I looked different, and um, I definitely got my fair share of teasing and bullying at school. I was much darker skinned than, well, not much darker, I guess, but I was darker skinned than most of my friends, and um, definitely uh, stuck out. Yeah. And, um, you know, things kind of uh, spiraled for me at adolescence, and you know, I really struggled uh, for many years after that, um, got into the drinking, and um, I had my daughter when I was 17. And I really, looking back, I think um, a lot of that was just seeking identity and <clears throat> lots of attachment issues and abandonment um, concerns. 
even though my parents were good to me and uh, I was valued in the family, it was still that piece that was was missing for me. Yeah, and and that's that's really interesting. I think because I think that's a really important aspect of of all of this is you kind of the spiritual self of things. And when when something's not really fitting, I think our you know spiritually we just know it's not fitting. Um, so that that's very interesting. Um, now did they encourage you at all? Like when you got older, and, and I don't know if you were you did you start talking to them about um, I guess your biological mom and and. Being Métis, did, did you guys talk about that as you kind of, like you said, you got into adolescence at all? Yeah, no, not really. My parents didn't really um, encourage that kind of discussion. Um, I wish they would have, I guess, looking back, but um, I don't know if they knew how. Mm. <clears throat> so so there, was there, there was no kind of, uh, no real encouragement to find your, do- your biological mom or anything like that, I, I'm assuming then, eh? No. In fact, my dad um, discouraged it. He was afraid that I would hurt my adoptive mom. And uh, so, uh, in fact, I, I didn't really, I didn't bring it up on purpose. You know, I was worried about hurting them and, you yeah. know, looking ungrateful and and also just sticking out in the family. I really didn't like um, not belonging. Belonging is a huge thing for people who are adoptive. And, and so when you kind of create those um, situations where it's uncomfortable, you, you draw attention to yourself, and so I tried not to do that really until um, I got a bit older. So, uh, um, what was it then? Uh, as you got older, you had your daughter. Um, was that kind of where you started to, I guess, look for more answers, or was it? Did that even come later? Yeah, definitely. Having my daughter was. Uh, um, significant for me. I didn't have any medical records or, um, uh, uh, you know, history of any kind of disease or yeah. uh, um, whatever, whatever might be in the family. So that created an issue. And so I actually went to Child and Family Services when I was about 17 after I had my daughter and they gave me some non-identifying information. Um, but again, my birth mother what, it turns out my birth mother was way older than they said she was, or told my parents. <laughs> wow. I mean, there were lots of inaccuracies in that, but um, there was no significant medical uh, concerns, so that was good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I found out um, a few, you know, a much different story than what they told my my adoptive parents. So now, like, because I, I know that, um, I don't know if they did it on purpose, but I, I've heard that they kept very poor records, like you said, they're very inaccurate. Um, so, it, which made it difficult for a lot of people to actually find their their birth parent. Um, did Did you find that where it was a it was a quite the challenge to get through that information? And well, I still haven't found my birth family actually. And, oh, really? Um, yeah, um, I was just telling uh, a friend of mine that. I was able to get my birth registration document from Child and Family Services in Manitoba, but my birth father's name isn't listed. Oh, wow. Um, and he is the one that's Indigenous, and so that is a problem. Culturally, it's an issue because I can't trace back his origin and what community he's from or, yeah. of course, where, you know, what his name was or anything like that. So yeah. It's still... <laughs> still tr- trying to decide whether I want to pursue that or not, but yeah. Yeah. 
So, um, but you uh, on your mom's side? Well, like on your mom's side, or is that also a Métis side, or no? No, she was non-Indigenous, as far as I know, um, from Northern Ontario. When they told my par- my adoptive parents she was from Winnipeg, but she was actually from Northern Ontario, and she was already in her mid twenties when they, you know, originally they said she was in her late teens, but. Oh, wow. But, yeah, and she already had a son, so um, her parents, you know, kind of gave her this ultimatum, apparently, that uh, they weren't willing to support another baby because she already had a son, and so that's what forced the adoption, according to the records, anyways. But um, There's lots of information about the birth, about my birth father in there that I really don't know um, is true. Yeah. Now, um, wow, that's very interesting. So, how is it? How has it been then to try to reconnect with your Métis culture if you don't know? Because I know that you know tracing your your family gene- genealogy is, is like the big, you know, starting point for a lot of people. So, how is has that been quite a challenge to get accepted as being Métis, even though you don't have that information? Yeah, for sure. I um, it started years and years ago. I'm sure it's taken me a good. 10 years, um, and actually I pestered the, the Manitoba Métis Federation for years to open my, see if they could get more information from my adoption file, but they didn't have the legal authority to do that. And so in Manitoba, um, the post-adoption registry um, made an agreement with the MMF to share information about our files, what's in our files, rather. And so um, that that was the way I was able to establish my Métis membership. Um, they were able to do a genealogy search through the St. Boniface Historical Society. Oh, okay. Um, but they were they wouldn't and couldn't share information with me, so I still don't know <laughs> where where I'm from or what community I'm from or whatever. I just know I have Métis status. So, membership. so they were able to share the information with the MMF? But the yeah. MMF's not allowed to share that with you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow, that is uh, quite the system. Yeah, it's pretty uh, bizarre to me. But I mean, it's my information. It's pretty frustrating not to be able to access it. Well, yeah. I mean, on it, that that doesn't even seem legal. That that shouldn't even be legal. It doesn't seem like. But um, wow. So. So then, okay, so they've established that you are Métis, but you, they can't tell you how or where or where from. Um, but you have a you're, you have a Métis, a Manitoba Métis Federation membership, I'm assuming? Yes, in fact, I just got it last summer. I went to Winnipeg last uh, April and had my photograph taken for the card. So it took almost 10 years just to establish a membership with the Métis Federation in Manitoba. Wow. And so now... Now, how have they, um, you know, because with the 60s scoop and obviously Métis were left out and, uh, you know, the government's promising to get to Métis eventually at some point in time. So where, I guess, where have you, have you been involved in, in trying to fight that fight or how how involved in that have you been? Um, yeah, I've been paying attention and keeping track of what's happening with the agreement in principle and uh, honestly, I think... Um, the Métis, at first, the Métis and non-status being left out of that agreement was pretty disappointing. Um, but the further I delve into it, maybe I'm thinking that it's a good it's a good thing. 
because the agreement in principle uh, leaves out a lot of really significant issues like um, repatriation and sharing that information with adoptees. Um, of course, the amount is never going to be enough to recover, you know, any kind of cultural aspects that we've lost. And yeah. it, it doesn't it doesn't include any of the sexual or physical abuse either. Oh, and wow. So, yeah, so that, I mean, and then you also, um, if you agree to that um, uh, settlement, then you're also waiving your right to sue the federal government again. And so when I review the information, I think I don't really think that's a great deal. And so I'm um, hoping to meet with um, President Chartrand at the MMF. He, he says he has negotiations going with um, Minister uh, Bennett, and um, it's unclear what kind of terms he's negotiating. Yeah. Well, so... <laughs> So in the in that agreement, the the part of it is that they, you know, again, you're still not going to be shared that information of your own history. That that is actually part of the that agreement they already have with uh, in place. No, it wasn't included at all. Wow. The agreement in principle also sets up a, a healing foundation. Um, but when I looked at the table, uh, that setting up this foundation, it's mainly lawyers. <laughs> so oh, really? I just think like there's not, there hasn't been enough consent and consultation uh, happening with survivors. I think um, they need to do better. So it, it kind of sounds to me like it's the government's way of uh, almost washing their hands of, well, you know, there's, there's yeah. a few thousand now that we don't have to deal with anymore. So now we can move forward. And uh, yeah, exactly. Wow. I think there's, as you can see today from the announcements about um, forming this um, uh, agreement, I guess, with Indigenous folks and having this um, method of avoiding court, I I just see it as another kind of attempt to placate us and, you know, wash their hands of us. And, <clears throat> and yeah. then, then they don't have to listen to us either. <laughs> well, absolutely, yeah. It's just a, it's just a way to, to shirk responsibility for something, right? Um, so what now what's with what's going on um so they say that they're in negotiations but like you said you don't know like is there any communication as to where they are what the community what they're negotiating for what does it look like anything like that i have no idea you know what i've been trying to reach um president Chartrand at the mms um and i have not received a response from his office although i did get a response from the director of uh, tripartite negotiations. Um, she did mention that he is negotiating on behalf of uh, 60 Scoop survivors um, and the MMF, but um, wouldn't share what that looks like. So that seems a little that seems a little odd. Like I would think, if they have a list of 60 Scoop survivors and they're that they're negotiating on behalf, I would think that that naturally they would keep you keep everybody kind of up to date as to what's going on and. And put that information out there, um, but that is not the case. It, it seems pretty secretive. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it just kind of reminiscent of this agreement in principle. You know, like if it's if we're not included and part of the negotiations, then I'm not sure I really want to be part of the agreement that comes up. So now, <clears throat> well, well, that's just it. I mean, if uh, <laughs> I mean, really, they can negotiate anything, and then uh, is, does that mean it's over with now? 
So um, you, there is an option to opt out of that agreement, and apparently, if you get up to two thousand signatures, then they have to renegotiate this agreement in principle. And so, I think there's a movement by the National um, Survivors of Indigenous Child Welfare, uh, the network. They're pushing for these two thousand signatures, and so, but the Métis aren't part of it, so I mean, you can't really help in that regard. Yeah. So. Yeah, you almost have to wait until this the new agreement that they negotiate comes out and then probably get your own 2,000 signatures. Yeah, yeah. So, well, the other, the other option is to file, you know, to file our own agreement, or rather our own lawsuit, class action. Now, I know that there was a, there's a fellow in Saskatchewan that has filed lawsuit. Is there, um... Is there a way to join that action, or do you have to launch kind of a different one in each province, or do, do you know how that works? Or I'm not certain, but I think he's filed against the province of Saskatchewan. Oh, and, okay. Um, I'm not certain. I'd have to look into that, but um, definitely watching to see what happens with Robert Duplett. Now, is um, I guess, is there any help that's offered from the MMF or, or any organization that... If you do file, is there any legal help that they offer? Do they offer any, you know, recommend a lawyer that you could use or anything like that? Um, not to my knowledge, although there was a name passed around and I contacted the lawyer and um, he requested a retainer and apparently that was not what they had agreed to. So I haven't heard back from him. And so I've kind of, I haven't pursued it. Um, oh, okay. But yeah, they, but the MMF... Um, hasn't offered any kind of legal assistance to my to my knowledge. Wow. So how many have you made um have you made contact with a lot of other 60 soup survivors and you mentioned a, a network um is that um more of an advocacy group I guess that than than the the Métis organizations themselves are? Definitely they do a lot more public engagement and um awareness uh, campaigns. In fact, they're they're um, in the process of organizing some uh, rallies uh, across Canada uh, for March 16th. That's for 60. That's um, it's a protest rather um, about the agreement in principle and hopefully gathering more uh, signatures towards the 2,000 that they need. Wow. Yeah, and in the meantime, I've actually formed uh, an organization with uh, a group of ladies from Manitoba uh, called the 60s Scoop Legacy of Canada, and it's aimed towards, you know, those of us that were left out of this agreement in principle, because it was quite traumatic yes. uh, when, this, when this announcement came out, because there was no support set up, you know, and we had no idea that the Métis were being left out, that that just came out of the blue. Oh wow! And so there was a lot of um, uh, outcry, I guess, and really people were just devastated. You know, this was re-victimization all over again. And so that the focus of our organization is more healing and support. And um, we're actually hosting uh, um, an event in Winnipeg on uh, February 28th for survivors. Oh wow! Well, that's wonderful. Um, and and. I guess uh, while we're talking about it, is there a websites that people can go to f- to find out information on the rallies and, and the protests and, and where they can, I guess, come out to show their support? Yeah, definitely. There's lots um, on the national, I believe it's the National Indigenous Survivors of Child Welfare Network, NIS, no, NI, 
and definitely all over Facebook. There's they yeah. have a Facebook page, and uh, there's an Ontario 60 scoop. Like I, th- I think most of the provinces each have their own uh, 60 scoop um, okay. Facebook page, and wow. And the 60 scoop Legacy of Canada has uh, a WordPress uh, website and a Facebook page as well. Wow. So I guess um, ultimately, um, from any of these agreements, what would be, I guess, your ultimate goal of seeing in an agreement that that you feel would would kind of, I guess, satisfy at least your what you're looking for in a, in a settlement kind of situation? Well, I think, in my opinion, there needs to be a lot more consultation and definitely consent. And some of the terms that I think are really important are um, membership, either either by status or MMF or or in the Métis, you know, society in your province. Um, just making that a lot easier for survivors, and also um, uh, contact with family. There's, I believe, there needs to be a service for that. Like lots of people have difficulty accessing their records and. Um, having our adoption file opened up would be really helpful in, you know, uh, contacting our birth families. Yeah. Uh, but we definitely, I, I mean, I don't even know his name, my birth father's name at this point. So, wow. That kind of stuff. And then definitely the amount is, um, the amount of compensation, I should say, is quite insulting. Um, and it's on a sliding scale. So the fewer, um, uh, plaintiffs there are the the remainder of the money goes into this foundation that we're not part of oh this, wow this this healing foundation so yeah. yeah that's that's gotta change i think and um yeah so, i think sorry oh i was gonna say so who runs this this i guess healing um foundation that they want to start is it is that a government run thing or so uh, it was the vision of um, Chief Marsha um, Martell yep. Brown, and um, her lawyer is actually the one that's uh, organizing this uh, foundation. And when I looked at the list of the table, um, I'd say half are lawyers um, and a couple of representatives from INAC, and then three or four um, plaintiffs. Wow. So to me, the the formation of that is problematic, as you can imagine, and uh, so I think that needs to be addressed as well. Well, yeah, it just it just seems to me like it's everything, every step of this whole process, and every part of the agreement is just a way to I'm almost re-traumatize people um, throughout the whole process. Like none of this seems, uh, you know, fair or equal or or anything. Um, so yeah, I, I can definitely understand why. You would not like the agreement. It, it doesn't sound like something that's very, very fair to the to the people that went through this. So, yeah, it's unfortunate that it came about this way, um, and it was kind of dropped on us, you know, and then without supports, as I say. So, um, having that connection to community and to family is so important. Yeah. Have, now, how how have um, have you found support in, in in your community and in other areas? Um, you know, just as you throughout your daily life, have you found support in many other areas 
outside of government and, and stuff like that, that, that kind of are helping you get through some of this stuff? Absolutely. I mean, Shelby Brown has been a fantastic support. Um, she's a fellow student of, and friend of mine at uh, university. Yeah. And then actually at, at Vancouver Island University, there's a group of students that uh, do some volunteer work and advocacy and mentorship. And uh, I've found some support that way. And then actually I connected with um, a Métis elder there, both at BIU and at the U of M. Yeah. And so I've been in contact with him, with both of them rather, um, quite a bit um, uh, while I maneuver through some of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that I, you know, and that's the nice thing I think that uh, at least you're finding support in the community. Um, and and with that though, is it still are you still finding it hard to, or are you finding it hard to reconnect with Métis culture, or or I don't know, you know, come to some sense of what does that mean when you kind of try to connect so late in life, and has that kind of been a a bit of an issue for you? Definitely, and. Um... I think being out on the island here is even more challenging just because there's so few of us. And so when I do um, connect with a Métis, a fellow Métis folk, um, you know, I try to maintain that relationship and contact and learn as much as I can. And <clears throat> that's going to be a lifelong um, journey, I think. Yeah. You know, trying to catch up after 40 plus years <laughs> of, <laughs> of not moving it and then, you know, um, it takes a long time to yeah to learn learn the culture. Well, and I yeah I do I I from, I've heard from a lot of people that when you're you know my, myself I didn't grow up Métis in my family either, um, and so it is a later in life thing for myself. But I've 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 heard from a lot of people that it it's actually hard um, even within you know the indigenous circle of life there um, to get people to accept you because you didn't grow up with with that culture, almost as if it's somehow your fault you didn't grow up that way. Um, have you found any of that kind of animosity towards, you know, towards yourself about, you know, well, you're not really Métis because you didn't grow up that way kind of thing? Absolutely. And, I mean, even my name uh, is non-Indigenous, and so in an in Indigenous community, I am always um, identified as, as non, and so... That's a challenge, and it's—I mean, in one—in some ways, when I think about it, like we're not really accepted in either culture, in either an indigenous society or in non-indigenous or white mainstream, as you might call it. Yeah. And um, you know, not having grown up with that culture just makes it even more difficult. I think. Yeah, well, it's it's that old, you know, we live in, in several worlds, and, and unfortunately, in some cases, I mean, sometimes you're not accepted in any of them, and uh, it just kind of leaves you out in that, you know, the, the proverbial road allowance of where do you even go? Um, have you found, with the, with the MMF or any other organizations, have you found uh, support there as far as trying to reconnect with your culture, or or is it mainly just kind of you on your own trying to maneuver your way through it? Well, that's what it feels like. But, um, you know, I haven't been able to uh, connect with an elder there aside from when I met um, uh, the elder from University of Manitoba recently. And so I'm not even sure how to navigate that. 
like being out here on the island is tricky. And yeah. when you haven't grown up with, uh, um, uh, you know, folks that are part of the MMF or, or the Métis community, you know, you're an outsider. So yeah. uh, oftentimes you really, it's difficult to break into that, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I can I can see that being a definite challenge. Uh, I know for myself, there really is no no way for me to learn it or for me to teach it to my daughter. It's just kind of you figure it out. <laughs> and yeah, uh, you're kind of on your own. Yeah, and it's very difficult. Like it's, I I don't know. I I you know you can read books, you can talk to a few people, but there's no real. I guess, immersion into it kind of thing. Yeah, well, uh, the other thing I was thinking is that the other day I was talking to a a fellow survivor, and she said, you know, I don't want to be seen as one of those wannabe Indians. And I thought, oh, like, that's just brutal to hear uh, when you're trying to reclaim your culture. It's just heartbreaking. You know, um, that kind of discrimination just is painful. And it just, you know when you're trying to be accepted and belong somewhere and then you hear stuff like that, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Well, it is because I mean, you know, we have to realize that it's not through any fault of anybody's except the government's that, that you've, you lost your connection to that culture. So, um, I, I find that very disconcerting. I've heard that actually from several people that have come across that attitude and it just kind of breaks my heart every time I hear it. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, we're just people trying to trying to figure out who we are, and and that certainly doesn't help. Well, that's true. And if you've grown up in a white society where it was shameful to be Indian, and then you're trying to, you know, learn your culture, and then you're shamed for that too, it's a double whammy. So yeah, that's that's been difficult. But um, I try not to think about it too too much, and just you know, keep forging ahead. Yeah. So have you guys, um, you know, you're you're involved with these groups and these several of these groups, and have you seen any, I guess, positive progress with either the government or or anything like that, or is it still it's just basically all secret and hush hush? I think what's happened is people have mobilized. Uh, unfortunately, when bad things happen, that's when people are um, motivated to make some changes, and so I've seen that quite a bit. Okay. Um, you know, petitions and letter writing and um, awareness campaigns happening. So I think that's been really positive. And then, the, you know, the connecting with other survivors. Like, I had no idea there were um, other people on the island in the, in the same situation as me until recently. And um, so that's been really great to make those connections with other survivors. And Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's the, I mean, that's the important part is, is trying to reconnect with people and especially when you guys have all gone through the same thing. I mean, then it's, it's very relatable. Um, now, you know, speaking of that, if, if you're, if there's others on the island, is there any, I guess, is there a kind of a, a meetup group or do you guys get together every, you know, once a month or something to kind of just show that support to each other or? I haven't, um, I haven't seen anything formal organized but um okay well, now that you mention it maybe we should do that <laughs> well, i'm full of ideas just trust me yeah <laughs> some good some bad um 
Well, that's, uh, you know, it's... I've seen what's happening in Vancouver, but not on the island so far. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, Vancouver, probably in the major centers, it's probably happening a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But, um, so what, I guess, what do you see happening, or or I guess, what do you think will be happening in the next, I don't know, six to 12 months even, as far as, do you think, even if it's not a good agreement, or if it's like the one that's already out there, do you see something like that happening, I guess, before the government's next election bid, or... Or do you think it'll happen after that? Or, you know, what what kind of time frame do you think realistically something might happen? With the agreement or? In, yeah, in... like with including Métis or coming out with some sort of agreement, like if the MMF is negotiating, do you think they'll have some sort of framework set up, I guess, within the next year or so? Or is there any indication of anything? That's a good question. I'm not certain that um, the MMS can get anything in place in the next year or so. Um, but then again, I'm not privy to the information and uh, yeah. what's happening um, as far as negotiations go. Um, as far as the actual agreement and principle that's um, been released now, I think it will proceed, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think the the Métis and non-status will be excluded from that. Yeah, and well, and I've read that they they promise to get to the Métis and non-status as soon as they settle every single law, court case regarding the 60s scoop that's out there. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, that could be like 30 years from now. It um, really could. Depending on how, how fast the government wants to try to settle cases. Um, so yeah, just... And it was... Go ahead. With an election pending next year, I mean, everything could change. Well, absolutely. And and I think, you know, I've talked about it, or we've talked about it on this podcast before. It's It seems like when it comes to the government, it's a, it's kind of a kick the ball down the field and hope somebody else has to deal with it mentality. Yeah, totally. Um, and that's what I'm, it sounds like this is, is, you know, we've got one agreement, that's good. Now Métis and non-status can, we'll deal with those sometime in ever. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Yeah. If you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so what can I guess what can people do to to help out? What can people do or um to try to throw support into this so that we can maybe see some change in the next five years? Um well, I think attending the rallies that are happening on March sixteenth would be really helpful. I think you know, drawing awareness to what's happening and uh, what's not happening, um, you know, is helpful to us. And also just supporting the people that you know that may have been affected by the 60 scoops and um, child welfare in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's really, I think that's the piece that's missing for a lot of us is we don't have that support from our um, government, at least not yet. Yeah. Um and so, you know, having that grassroots kind of um, support is really important. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important. I think people definitely need to start showing up and, and getting out and being in public and getting the voice louder. Um, and that, you know, that kind of goes across the board with everything, um, but especially something like this. Is there is there something that you... Nah, 
it's kind of a hard question to ask even, but is there something, I guess, as a, as an organization, as a Métis organization or a Métis community that, that could be done or, or, you know, something that you, you'd like to see happen where we as a community can show a lot more understanding or show, you know, start to help people learn their culture. Is there something that, is there any, I guess, one or two things that you could see that would kind of kick that off a little bit better or? You know, what I would love to see is the, all the communities, not just Métis, but um, even like First Nation and, um, uh, and Métis communities um, have a welcoming home feast. Okay. Where, you know, children that were removed from their homes, either from the 60 scoop or child welfare, the millennial scoop, whatever, whatever the case was, have a welcoming home ceremony and, uh, and celebration and feast. Ooh, that would um, be wonderful. Yeah, I think it would be a really nice gesture for those of us that um, were discommunicated or excommunicated, I guess is the right word, um, from our communities or don't even know where you're from. Um, so an organization like the MMF holding something like that would be really symbolic to me, you yeah. know, to say, you belong here, you're one of us, you know, welcome home would be really significant. Wow, yeah, no, I, I never even thought of that, but that is a wonderful idea, yeah, absolutely. Um, so is there anything, I guess, um, is there anything we haven't talked about tonight that you, you you wanted to let people know or you wanted to get more of your story out or anything that we haven't already covered? Or um, I think just knowing that um, it's a struggle for us every day, I was telling, like I mentioned, the identity issues and uh, attachments and abandonment issues. I mean, those affect our daily lives. And so just having that kind of awareness that sometimes we're not, we're not okay. Mm-hmm. And we need your support. I think that's what I'd really like to emphasize and to stress to, to everybody. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I I absolutely agree with you. I think that would be, you know, we definitely need to show more support as a community as and as Métis people and as, you know, Indigenous people supporting our own because um, that doesn't come from anywhere else but but us. So, yeah. Um, well, I really appreciate you coming on. And, uh, you know, I'd like to, you know, I'd, I'd love to have you back on in six months when there's a there's huge advancements in this in this area with the government, but uh, um, you know I would leave it open to to have you back on. Um, and uh, you know I, I I think in talking to you tonight that I've had several ideas of of even you know I'm coming out to the island in in May and maybe maybe I'll take some more time and I'll actually come up and maybe we can get more people together and and talk more openly about it all you know with more people even. Um, that would be fantastic. Because I think it's important. Um, I think a lot of times it's the isolation feeling uh, from a lot of people, and I think you know I'm trying to get those voices out there. And this is one avenue to do it is on this podcast. And and but the more people hear it, I think the more they will realize they're not alone. Then they they don't need to be isolated. So I really appreciate you coming on just for that reason alone. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me and uh, letting me share my story and you know, some of the challenges that we face, but I think as a community, we can, we can come together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we, and we definitely need to, and we should. So, um, 
I, I would, uh, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to plan to come out there and, and we'll, we'll work something out where we can have, maybe even have four or five people, um, on the show talking about what this, how this affects them. Oh, that would be awesome. Awesome. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for tonight and, uh, I won't, uh, take up too much more of your time now. All right. Thanks again. All right. Pleasure talking to you. You betcha. Once again, I want to thank Kathy LaGrange for coming on and sharing her information, her insights, and her story with us. Uh, it was truly a pleasure and an honor to have you on, and I hope uh, hope to have you on in the future, and I hope there's some positive movements in the future that we can come on and you can let us know about that we can actually celebrate. So I look forward to having her on again. You know, as I'm recording this, um, the jury has heard final arguments for the trial of Raymond Cormier, who's on trial for the murder of Tina Fontaine, a 15-year-old indigenous young woman. And, you know, after the Colbushi verdict, um, I don't have a positive attitude towards the Canadian legal system. Um, I mean, there's still hope. I still do have a little tiny bit of hope. Uh, I, don't ex- I don't have a high expectation of the verdict in this trial. Um, and then even more so close to my home, there's a, a trial, an ongoing trial, to try and pull a few, uh, a couple of Indigenous children out of a non-Indigenous foster home and into their communities with their biological families. And this has been ongoing for a couple of years now. Um, you know, the laws are not on the side of the Indigenous people in this case. Uh, and it just highlights every day how, you know, these acts of genocide and, and things like that, they're still happening. And it's it's heart wrenching to to see these stories and to see the stuff going on today. This is not something from the past. I know the '60s scoop happened in the '60s, but we're still having these issues. And so, even if they come out with a '60s scoop settlement, that does not solve anything. It doesn't solve the problems of what's going on today. So, uh, if you're if you're not already actively involved in in trying to fight these things, you know, through whatever means you have available to you. I hope that you get motivated to get involved. And every person that shows up at a rally, writes letters, takes action, and and helps in whatever way they can, you're important. That's important. We need to show that solidarity. All in, with all Indigenous across this land, we need to be a family, come together. And, and there's a lot of people that already are. And I'm not saying anything that you haven't heard a million times already. But we, we so desperately need it. Um... Because it's, it's still happening, and it's going to continue to happen unless we do something and stop expecting the government to do it for us. Having said that, I hope that you uh, get out there and be the change you want to see in the world. And until next week, the jig is up. You are the spark that's starting a fire that will spread across this land. And it will be a fire that doesn't burn, but a fire that cleanses, a fire that ignites in our hearts and creates light.